Computer, initialize HoloSuite. On this explosive episode, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1979 in issues 21 and 22. Anthony Rooney fills us in on Jerry Anderson's Space 1999 report. Plus, Star Wars Mark Hamill, Buck Rogers, Wonder Woman, Battlestar Galactica, Moonraker, Alien, and more movie previews of 1979 on this issue of Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending NashvilleCon, which is downtown Nashville, Tennessee, September 25th. It's going to be a great one, especially Jim Shooter's going to be there. He always has amazing stories about his years at Marvel Comics. We will also be attending Tennessee Game Days. That's in Franklin, Tennessee on October 1st through 3rd. It's days of board gaming, all day and all night. Also, Clarksville Con is right around the corner on October 23rd. That's another pop convention. Lots of comics, cool things. Music City Multicon is October 29th through 31st in Lebanon, Tennessee. We will be there. This is a video game focus convention, but it's expanded out to other pop culture items as well. Wow, we do so much that I have to listen to our podcast to see what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Starlog Magazine, issue number 21, April, the cover date from 1979. So we're going to start out reading Communications. These are letters to Starlog. All right, so listen to this crybaby. This is Robert K. Phelps from Arlington, Virginia, says, I've just wasted $8 and two hours of time watching the new Superman film. The film is simply a botched-up mess that is receiving too much publicity. The special effects were well done, but the storyline is very weak. Many fine performers were put in the film so that their names could be used in the advertising. For example, Glenn Ford, who does not appear long enough to allow him to develop the character of Jonathan Kent. Okay, what do you think about this guy's comments? It's amazing that someone didn't like the movie. (laughs) I loved it. Are you kidding me? He didn't think there was enough Jonathan Kent in the movie? I I mean, the movie was about Superman, what? <laughs> I've yet to hear someone say there's not enough Jonathan Kent in a Superman movie. Yeah, honestly. I mean, well, well, of course, he was talking about, like, famous actors. And, and Christopher Reeve was an unknown at the time. But wasn't he great in the movie? I mean, I love watching him in How it. much Marlon Brando do you really want? <laughs> <laughs> what powers the Battlestar and Vipers? Tilium fuel. What is that? I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait for a Battlestar Galactica tech manual to explain that. Now, this is from Dave Sobral, 24 Joyce Road, East Haven, Connecticut. The reason why this caught my attention is because my brother lives in East Haven, Connecticut. So next time I go and visit him, I think I'm going to go to 24 Joyce Road and see if Dave lives there. And maybe talk about Battlestar Galactica with him. Oh, yeah. Looking at old Starlogs is a great way to make new friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you remember this is one of the keys about Starlog magazine is that you could build correspondence and you could also see who else in your area liked the things that you liked. Did did you actually try to write to someone who wrote in that communication section? The only thing I wrote to was the Star Trek. The Well Committee? That's it. The Star Trek Well Committee. And they gave you a list of pen pals. 
And well, so I well, wrote, yeah, that was, so that, that, was that was the purpose it. of yes. that. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's the only time I've ever wrote to anyone. But I remember seeing towns that were close by in Star Log, but I, I already knew the answer. If I asked my mother to like go somewhere that was more than 15 minutes, the answer was going to be no. So I didn't even bother. Right, exactly. And that, that's how I was too. Of course, there was nothing in Star Log in my area anyway. Yeah. Log entries. Superman busted for bigamy. Christopher Reeve has become an instant international star on the basis of his first major movie role, that of Clark Kent, Superman. Film reviewers, regardless of their opinion of the film, have been almost unanimous in their praise of Reeve's dual portrayal. He is utterly convincing as he switches effortlessly back and forth between personae. The article goes on to say that even though he was a virtual unknown, he did have a dual identity in the CBS daytime drama Love of Life. And it was during that time that he went back and forth between women. Between women? <laughs> okay, on the soap opera, right? Yes. So, I mean, this is kind of giving readers a fill-in on who this virtual unknown actor was. Because there was no IMDb, so if you wanted to find out what else Christopher Reeves did, you had to look for other newsworthy articles. So, yeah, so he did have some acting experience before Superman, but he just blew everyone away with Superman. Absolutely. He was the definitive Superman. Oh, and so, you know, you heard about the, that convention in Atlanta, Dixie Trek, where they had Christopher Reeve as a guest. Dixie Trek had been known as a Star Trek convention, and... That, I think, was the first year they didn't have a Star Trek guest, and so I decided not to go. And then the the accident with Christopher Reeve was very shortly after that. And the, and the year that they didn't have a Star Trek guest at a Star Trek convention was the year that they had Christopher Reeve. Right. <laughs> and, and when you tell me that, I cringe. I just can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that was the me back then. I mean, the me now would have gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible that I missed him, and they, they said that was the only con he ever did, too. When you told me that, that was the first thing I said was, he did cons? Yeah, <laughs> what? yeah. What? I never heard of him doing conventions. Yeah, oh, it would have been so neat to see him. All right, there's an advertisement for a new Starlog publication entitled Cinemagic, as well as Fantastica. A phantasmagoric flight into sheer imagination. Here's the curious thing. Cinemagic was a short-lived magazine about the behind-the-scenes world of movies and television, but Fantastica changed its name shortly thereafter to... Fangoria. Isn't that wild that Fangoria could have been called Fantastica? Science fiction fans con pros as Wonder Woman meets Robbie. Is it possible for two dedicated science fiction fans and inveterate convention goers to possess more expertise than the professionals? Would the pros in Hollywood pay attention to the fans or seek their advice? Arch, this is an entire article about the episode of Wonder Woman starring Linda Carter entitled Spaced Out. Now, we recently rewatched it, and it's absolutely amazing. It's one of the best Wonder Woman episodes, but especially if you're a geek and a con goer, you're going to recognize quite a few familiar things. Yeah, it was a fun episode. They actually went to a, a sci-fi convention in L.A. and filmed some of it. Um, so, of course, so I mean, Robbie the Robot was there, and... <laughs> yeah. um, and a lot of cosplayers. Now, now, most of the cosplay we saw in that episode was not really recognizable. It was like general sci-fi stuff. Yes. But when they showed the crowd scenes, that was actually filmed at, as you said, a convention in L.A., Galacticon. And what I found truly interesting wasn't just the general science fiction outfits that were hobbled together. But I think the closely as possible screen accurate costumes, like an Imperial officer and a Tuscan Raider from Star Wars, I mean, we're talking 1979. They had to use still photographs and 
there was no professional tooling. I'm I'm just amazed at what was done at the convention at this time. And obviously the producers noticed that was something special to include footage into this episode of Wonder Woman. It, it was really just a, just a small glimpse of it. But yeah, you you could tell that that it was from Star Wars and and it was really cool to see that. And yeah, and I and to see it now and and knowing how long ago this was made, you have to appreciate the the work that must have gone into it. It was harder back then, like you said, because the, how did they like the like like you couldn't find it on the internet back then. They had to just find pictures in Starlog or wherever they could find them to to know how to make those costumes and and be more creative in coming up with with patterns or, or whatever they could to to put this together. So it was just amazing. And they were piggybacking off of, and they actually used this as part of the plot for the show. A phenomena of conventions of that time was to have logies. Yes, the Logan's Run thing, which was <laughs> that was the most prominent thing in this episode from fandom was was all the Logan's Run stuff. The, it was. the runners, yeah, the runners being chased by the Sandmen. Oh, and it's so funny how this article said they had, oh, they had a character dressed as Rim that was chasing the runners because someone, <laughs> I, I think it was just someone behind the scenes on Wonder Woman didn't know that, that that's not how it works on Logan's <laughs> Run. <laughs> uh, pretty impressive, though, h- how they, Hollywood said this is a, a unique phenomenon amongst fans. We have to work fandom into the episode. So the winners of the costume contest at this convention the producer said, hey, can we rent your costumes and use your costumes? We need to use SAG actors in them. We can't use you, but can we use your costumes in the episode? And which they did. I mean, imagine the feeling of, like, if you were at Dragon Con at a costume contest and someone from Hollywood say, hey, we're going to put your costumes that you created in the next Wonder Woman movie. It must be an incredible feeling. And and imagine how I mean, of course they they would have loved it then. But the thing is, they they didn't know that Wonder Woman would would become so popular later. I mean, like that it would still be such a big show thirty years later, Mm -hmm. right? And and because um and they didn't know that like that it would wind up on, you know, video cassette and then DVD later, so that people could always watch it. I mean. I mean, that's what's so cool. It's like, oh, wow, the, yeah, these people, their costume gets to be seen forever. Mm-hmm. In this episode, the antagonist was René Aubergenois, who later on would have a starring role in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And that was so neat to see him. And he was such, he played this sort of a, a lovable thief type of character. Mm-hmm. He, he was very comedic, but also serious and... And he played a character that, like on the show, he was supposed to have already known Diana Prince, right? Because they, they knew each other. The two characters knew each other on the show. And I was show. saying to myself, did I miss an episode? Right. And then, yeah, and then I looked it up on IMDb, and it and it said he, like, he was not in any other episode of Wonder <laughs> yeah. Woman. So that, I mean, the character wasn't either. Yeah, so, that threw me off. Uh, so they just, they threw it in there, like, these people already know each other. But on the show, they, they like, had never Like, met. there was an encounter off screen right. somehow yeah. years before. Yeah, and and I like that the show did that just to, you know, just to say well, I mean, you know, Diana Prince has been on missions that we haven't seen before, but but another thing about this episode though, it it really did kind of, it, it's it still kind of put down the sci-fi fans. I mean, Diana Prince was not that much into it, right? It made us look like idiots. She she was yeah she I mean. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like, well, she didn't really say any, like, she didn't say this is stupid or anything like that, mm-hmm. but she was, she was like, yeah, yeah, that's what those people do. <laughs> yeah. You know? She, she was kind of like that, even though she was friendly enough, but, but, you know, that must be, so, so that's the idea that people had about science fiction fans back then. Like these people are in their own world. It, it was before, um, you could say a lot of us came out of the closet, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. na- now well, I think it's more common to to go to these conventions and to yeah, see Yeah, mainstream public yeah. accepts it more now. Yes. An interview with Mark Hamill. Luke Skywalker comes of age. Mark Hamill has found out that being a superstar isn't all that easy. A 24-year-old unknown during the filming of Star Wars, he now begins the sequel with the press touting him as a living legend at the tender age of 26. 
I, th- I think that's about uh, Christopher Reeve's age, too, when he did Superman. I was just going to say, isn't that amazing? We're talking back-to-back. Yeah. Star Wars, unknown Mark Hamill. Superman, unknown Christopher Reeve. And they became iconic characters in their own right. Yeah, they did. And, and I, I mean, it's great. Like, like you know, sometimes you, you just get lucky, like, fall into this part. How many actors get to do something that that becomes that popular? Well, the article talks immediately about John Dykstra and Mark Hamill's frustration that John Dykstra left Lucasfilm to work on Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that was odd, too. Um, but, I mean, but he had to do what what he thought was, was best for his career, so he left that. But, he, but, yells yeah, out, he, he yells out, Dykstra is a traitor. <laughs> like, really? This is the interview. That's the first thing on your mind is how... John Dykstra is a traitor because he left the job that you were on for another one that worked better for him? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I didn't even think like that the actors really knew the, the special effects people. I didn't even think they cared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is neat that this is that uh, Mark Hamill was always a sci-fi fan, which I kind of know now. But Yes, it was and he's been a collector. Yeah. He's always been a collector, even to the point where he knows about how shows – influence other shows movies influence other movies because he talks about Battlestar Galactica and he kind of trashes it anyway he says that that Battlestar Galactica is nothing but a ripoff of Star Wars well it it was very much influenced by Star Wars everything was influenced by Star Wars from this point forward yeah and but he does go on to say he says look you know when American Graffiti came out well then they made the Happy Days TV show and when James Bond movies came out, well, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and a whole series of spy shows came out. So that's just a natural progression. So he does realize that, well, it's not so much of a ripoff, but the public wants more of something. People who are in the production side of things are going to produce more. It, it all fits. And so, yeah, it, it is neat that he recognized that. So, so he knows what's going on. So, so Star Wars was his first film. So that was... Something else, and he he never really you know you know of course we know he didn't really do as much right except oh, until he got the Joker doing the voice of the Joker. Yeah, mentions he did do some other small parts. Nothing really kicked in though. Yeah, back then he didn't really. Yeah, I mean it. Luke Skywalker was the best thing. You oh, know it was. I mean? He made some yeah. movie called Corvette Summer, and then the big red one. And I'm saying I never heard of these movies before. It seems like I heard of Corvette Summer, but I forgot about it. But you know what? He did make a movie called um, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia with Christy McNichol. We need I to watch that it. sometime. I never saw it. Did you watch it? <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I know. Okay. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he talks a little about about Harlan Ellison. Sounds like he doesn't really like him. Well, a lot of people don't like him. But well, Harlan he, Ellison didn't like Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. It's that's That's the best thing about reading these historical documents. That is Starlog Magazines because it puts us in the perspective of not only fans of the era but also critics and other professionals. And hard science fiction writers looked at Star Wars and thought it was child's play because it broke the laws of physics. It didn't make sense in, in, in certain ways. They didn't view it uh, as a as a fantasy film. Star Wars in so many ways created its own genre or expanded on the genre of space fantasy. And so Harlan Ellison just didn't care for it at all. And he mentions that. Yeah. Star Wars wasn't really for the hardcore science fiction fans because it only, it's only science fiction on the surface. When you look at it, it's not really science fiction. It is more space fantasy. And my dad didn't like it for that reason. My dad loves Star Trek, but he says, this is like kid stuff. So, I mean, I try to look at it like, wow, like that's kind of how I am with Harry Potter. I just don't get it. Sometimes you, you see something as, that's more as kid stuff, but other people might like it. And Yeah, exactly. So this, this was a, you know, I've heard of people that were in their 20s when they saw Star Wars and they loved it. But what if you were in your 40s? Would you still love it? Yeah, it wasn't really for that audience. But but the thing is, calling it, you know, space opera, space fantasy, mm-hmm. like there's nothing wrong with that. That's the thing. I, it, I think that makes sense, though. I like yeah. the clarification of genre. Yeah, it doesn't have to be science fiction. I mean, it can still be in space. It can have the, the spaceships. 
but still be about the adventure and a, a little magic like the Force. Yes, and the article goes on to talk about Alec Guinness and his relationship with Mark Hamill. And even Alec says, you're in a fantasy film. Yeah, so he he recognized it too. Mm-hmm. In fact, Mark Hamill was expressing how at times he felt uncomfortable on the set, that he didn't feel that even though he was essentially the star of the movie, there wasn't enough focus on him. And And notice what Alec told him. He said, look, you're the juvenile lead. In every kind of fantasy picture, there has to be an anchor in reality to contrast with all the bizarre elements. If you don't fit in, the audience would say the special effects were terrific. But it was too bad the story and the characters didn't work out. So that was his way of saying, calm down, you'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, he had to talk to someone more experienced. But j just like... um. Well, I mean, just like Luke Skywalker talking to Obi-Wan, and Obi-Wan was the um, the voice of wisdom. That's so true. was Alec Guinness. That's true. Mm -hmm. And throughout the article, Mark Hamill reiterates how many people did not like the movie. Even he was on a TV show in Chicago. It was a live talk show. And they didn't pre-plan the discussion with the host, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher. And the host said, let me begin by saying this is certainly not a great picture. In fact, there's nothing great about it. <laughs> and he talks about how awkward it was to just sit there and hear someone berate him. <laughs> and, and that was weird. That, like really the interviewer weird. did the interviewer gave no indication beforehand that he was going to berate the movie on screen. It's horrible. And it surprised the actors. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes on to say the problem was it was a Sunday morning financial show. So they only wanted to talk about how this movie made so much money. And you look at it now like it, it's funny to watch some videos on YouTube and you realize how spur of the moment some talk shows were. Whereas now everything is planned. Where you sit is planned. What you wear is planned. It was not fly-by-your-pants interviews. This would never happen now. Like Mark – didn't know that it was a financial show that he was being interviewed on. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, why would they even need to have the actors on that? But it, it was just, it was, they just needed a sounding board. Yes. Mark goes on to say about what a huge nerd he is. He calls, he says he has fan fervor over Marvel and DC comics, as well as being a faithful reader of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that's one of the things that was part of his fandom. And we've talked about that magazine. And he said right now he's just currently awaiting to start producing the Star Wars sequel, which has a projected release date summer of 1980. Hi, this is Janet Gerard. My website is raygunsandrest.com. I do fandom-inspired jewelry and some steampunk and buttons, which I can do custom buttons too. So give me a shout, raygunsandrest at yahoo.com or on my website, raygunsandrest.com. Thank you. Book Rogers becomes the movie. Covering a sci-fi production from its inception is a fascinating experience. Much like watching the growth of a living thing, Sometimes its evolution is predictable, but sometimes the final shape of a show surprises even those responsible for giving it a life. Now, I know Buck Rogers in the 25th century is one of your favorite TV shows of all time. What did you think about the contents of this article? Uh, this was interesting uh, about how it was becoming a movie. At, at the time, at this time, it was supposed to be a movie instead of a TV series. And talking to Gil Gerard, he says that it always was meant to be a motion picture. Yeah, I mean you can, you can kind of see it there. It, it it looked, yeah that that first episode, the pilot that they made to be a movie was really different from the rest of the series. It was a little more serious. And and but this does say that NBC planned on airing a movie length pilot on TV. But it did yeah. get released in the movie theaters. Now, I never saw it in the movie theaters, but I did have a poster of it that I got from Burger King. And I had that poster on my wall for, I mean, a ridiculous amount of time, like 10 years. That's how long I had that poster hanging up, that Buck Rogers poster. A lot of posters don't last that long. Did you see it in the movie theaters? 
No, I didn't. I, I missed it. But I remember wh- where I lived it with, like the show, it was already on TV, and then the, the movie came in theaters. I think that must have been the time when, like, I wasn't keeping up with, with what movies were playing. Oh, so it was a, probably a re-release then? Yeah, yeah, it must have been. But I mean, but, but I, I think it must have been after that that I started keeping up with what movies were playing so I wouldn't miss another movie I wanted to see. Well, Gil Gerard goes on to say that there were rumors going around that Buck Rogers was going to be released as a feature. They found out that the film was being shot in 185 framing instead of 175. Now, 185 is for theatrical productions. 175 is for television. So that's how the rumors got started saying, you know what? They're going to just in case film this at a higher resolution just in case it gets going to the movie theaters. So that in itself is interesting that when it was being filmed, it was teetering where it would go. And kind of like when they were making Star Trek and trying to do Phase 2, a TV series, and then a movie, and going back and forth there, too. The studios must have been, you know, changing their minds a lot back then. It, it was that era because because of Star Wars, and they were trying to see what they had the budget to make. Could they make it a movie or a TV series? And Gil Gerard goes on to say that the idea was to have three made-for-TV movies in sequential order on television so a series of movies well that kind of makes sense because that that's what they did they had two hour episodes yes. the first three that's right so the then they realized wait let's just make it a weekly series and it was successful yeah. yes and they said that one of the reasons for this is because of Battlestar Galactica well because they reused the the sets from it Yes, and also, if you remember, Battlestar Galactica was released in the movie theaters initially. It was, yes. So another thing, yeah, that they were trying to follow that lead and also have have their own show. Totally. Now, producer Leslie Stevens is quoted by saying, We smelled that Battlestar Galactica would be a fine shot at the corner of the Star Wars market, and we were right. In theatrical release... Galactica beat out Greece and Jaws 2 in Japan and Canada, and it had been shown theatrically in this country in a few test locations after being shown on TV, and it did very good business. Now, see, that's something I never knew. I didn't know that Battlestar Galactica was shown on TV and only in select markets in movies. And also the article says... Um... When they, when they were doing filming a scene where he was supposed to be frozen, that he fell asleep there because yes. he was lying down for so yes. long. Yeah, and I, I remember that scene. Yeah. So when he was waking up <laughs> out of freezing, he really was waking up. He wasn't acting. That was funny, <laughs> but it was neat. He just he fell asleep and he said, "Hey, I, I mean, I still got paid." And also, Gil is saying that he is involved with talking with Glenn Larson about cleaning up some scenes. In fact, that he wanted to have a better resolution between Buck and Tiger Man to make the end more satisfying. Now, we know from talking to Bill Gildrard on numerous occasions that he really loves the character of Buck Rogers, and he cared about the production of it. It wasn't just a job to him. And this just reiterates, right from the beginning, he wanted the story to flow. Yeah, I, he actually had some thoughts about what to do with his character. And also he gave credit to Felix Celia as Twicky because he talked about how hot it was for him to be in that suit all the time. Yeah, and that, that was good, too, that Gil Gerard cared about his fellow actors, too. I mean, I love I that. virtually yeah. never hear that. Yeah, it's something. Any other productions, people talking about someone else in a suit. So, I mean, Gil Gerard is, he always has been a wonderful person. And this article just enforces that. This is the Hulk. You can place the Hulk into the rage cage. With a few pumps of the Hulk inflator, you can make the Hulk grow in size. Rip out of the shirt. And break out of the rage cage. The Hulk comes completely shown. Some assembly required from fun stuff. All right, so we just got back from Dragon Con 2021. I have to say, it was probably the best Dragon Con I ever went to. What did you think about the con? I thought it was a lot of fun. It was it was a lot smaller than usual, less crowded, and and fewer celebrities. 
But but you were saying that's what you liked about it. I think being away from a live Dragon Con for a year helped me to appreciate how much we need interactions with people beyond the video screen. Not that I ever doubted it, but it was so wonderful to see so many friends there in real life. Yeah, it was great to see because a lot of these people that, that we only see at Dragon Con that, From all, that we got to see. And, all yeah. over the country, exactly. Converged and, in Atlanta for Labor Day weekend. And it was it was awesome. And getting to to spend more time with friends too. Have, having the dinners with groups of people, having the um the, the late night room parties or or just going to a room we to went hang to, out. You know, it's good that you said that. We went to more room parties this year, I think, than we've ever done before. And I think a lot of people just wanted to connect more than ever before, saying, even though there's some panels that we wanted to go to, I haven't seen you in two years in real life. <laughs> yeah, so it was, a lot, it was a lot of fun just talking to people. It, it was. It was like the most connected Dragon Con I've ever been to. And I think I went to more panels this year because I was able to get the panels so quickly. Yeah, even though, I mean, it, it was still crowded, but not, not as much. You could actually walk around this time, and it wasn't shoulder to shoulder. Especially the the streets. The locals were not allowed to hang around the conventions at all. And that's where you get a lot of the gridlock. It's not from the people who are paying to go to the Dragon Con. It's just the massive, massive grid, gridlock downtown Atlanta that goes on during that time. People just hanging out all, all over the con. So, I mean, the convention organizers did an, an exceptional job. What were some of your highlights of the convention? All right, so we did costume one night as the rebooted Battlestar Galactica Viper pilots, and someone had a Battlestar Galactica vehicle at the convention that they parked out front of the Marriott. Yeah, that was neat. It was it was just a vehicle that he had had made up. I don't even know what you call these vehicles. I see them. They they look like futuristic cars. They're convertibles, but they're low riding. There has to be a name for it, but I've seen them before. But this guy had a wrap all over his car with Battlestar Galactica on it. And so we happened to see it when we were in our Battlestar Galactica cosplays. And so we took some pictures. <laughs> that was a random encounter that I didn't expect. Now, I moderated a panel on the comic book track with a variety of artists. And that was my first time doing it, working with the comic book track, which I love how things are set up there in the America's Mart. So for those who don't know, it's a building where the first three floors are dealers' rooms, and then the fourth floor, it's all artists and writers and comic book-related content, and they have two panel rooms there. You were in the audience of that panel. What did you think about it? I liked it. The panelists were very friendly. They wanted to be there. They, they loved talking about their art, so it was cool. Also, another highlight was the American Sci-Fi Classics track. Which, if they renamed it the Starlog track, I'd be happy with because it's all things that they talk about in Starlog magazine, especially the panel about aliens that I went to, which an amazing series of movies, the alien productions. I mean, the people on that panel really knew a lot about the franchise. And I think that's one of the best things about Dragon Con is that there's so many fan panels, people who are experts in their field sharing their knowledge with attendees. I went to a panel on the American Sci-Fi Media track that had um, Tyler Hoechlin, the man who plays Superman on Superman and Lois, and that was neat seeing him. I mean, the show is a great show, and but but I know this. I noticed one of the things he said was that he didn't really study a lot of of the previous actors that played Superman. The only one he really knew was was Dean Kane from Lois and Clark. So, so it's it's just neat the the way the different ways that actors approach these parts. I mean, for him, he said he just thought it would be better if he did know anything about the other actors because that way he could be his own person. He could play Superman the way he wanted and not be influenced by anyone else. Interesting. Well, well yeah, okay, that's one way to do it. But he does mm-hmm. do a good job as Superman. Mm-hmm. The costumes are always incredible, and this year was no exception. The raid of the Tyrannosaurus Rexes had to be. Quite possibly the single funniest thing that we saw numerous times throughout the convention. It has become a big thing at Dragon Con to wear a T-Rex costume. So, so now they've got like... And they're huge. Like maybe 30 it's, of it's, them or This something. isn't jammies we're talking about. These are inflatable... How would you describe them? Yeah, it's it's 
to to the person wearing it, I guess it's like wearing a big balloon, really. <laughs> you have to fill it up with air. Yeah, yeah, and then put it on and it it covers your whole body, really, but they do they usually have an opening in the face so you can see. But but yeah, it's just hilarious. They were so they walk around in a group and and at night they go around crashing parties or the these dances like they were at the the track track the 10 forward dance and some of the other dances too it would just be a, a bunch of t-rexes go in and just sort of walk around the room and 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 then walk out and they go to the next dance and i went to like the the brick track and i saw a panel on on british monarchs that was really cool mm-hmm. and they they have a lot of knowledgeable people there on their that panel they're just like you know, I did the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I did the yeah. Rolling Stones sing along at the Brit track there, and a Doctor Who panel at the Brit track there. Which British media it it there it encompasses so much. I, I mean, yeah, Doctor Who and James Bond, and and they had I know that they've always covered other things like anything like oh what else like the the Avengers. Well, and, like you said, with the monarchs, even though that's real world, yeah, to understand the monarchs better helps you understand british media better because so much comes from that because it yeah it, it's just it's so much history there and it's something that's still there now mm-hmm. and on the star wars track uh, the one about um about how the how star wars movies were affected by different generations like the the gen x movement and generation y and millennials and about how the the newest star wars movies are more made for the millennials that was really interesting. They had a, a a PhD there giving the presentation. Yeah, it was it was one for the record books. Absolutely love this year's Dragon Con. Can't wait to next year's. Starlog Magazine, issue number twenty two, cover date May nineteen seventy nine. Log entries. Sci fi films face setbacks. So there's quite a few movies that are having a hard time getting out at the proposed time period. John Barry, production designer for Superman the Movie and Star Wars, withdrew as director of the production Saturn Three. Also, Stanley Kubrick's production of The Shining was wiped out by a fire early in February. The Empire Strikes Back, which is George Lucas' Star Wars sequel, was to begin production on the same soundstage in March but has instead been transferred to Lee International Studios in Wembley. And in the United States, AIP's $17 million production Meteor will not open on June 19th as scheduled due to special effects footage that has not been filmed. It has been planned for release October 19th. Theaters stuck in a midsummer empty play date will be offered Dracula's send-up Love at First Bite. Universal's Incredible Shrinking Woman, which was the star, Lily Tomlin, has been suspended possibly forever because of basic disagreements between director John Landis and the studio over the amount of money to be invested in the film's effects. Well, we know that movie got made. It sure did. <laughs> and, um, well, what they, they I heard they, they didn't really use effects. They just used oversized props and everything instead of actually shrinking effects. Yeah, but look at how many movies in 1979 had some sort of setbacks in there. Quite a few in rapid succession. That that was a good bit. But that uh, but the other one you mentioned too, Love at First Bite. I loved that movie. I saw it yeah. in theaters. It was oh man. <laughs> I think it was like that was probably my first Dracula movie. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Presenting the world's greatest Mego heroes. Migo's new line of 14-inch figures. The world's mightiest mortal, Shazam! 14-inch Migo figures. Gotham's Dark Knight, it's Batman! 14-inch Migo figures. Here's the Man of Steel, Superman! 14-inch Migo figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Migo. Lauren Green calling the shots aboard Battlestar Galactica. A year ago, Lauren Green was a science fiction novice. Today, he leads the last remnants of a far-flung humanity on a weekly flight for freedom. All right, now, when I was watching Battlestar Galactica as a kid, 
My grandfather would say, oh, yeah, it's, it's Lauren Green from Bonanza. I well, just, yeah, I knew he was from Bonanza, even I, though I didn't watch it. I yeah. never watched Bonanza. I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, Bonanza. <laughs> <laughs> so this article actually talks about Lauren Green in Bonanza. And uh, interesting because it shows his background. I didn't realize that in Bonanza, he wanted to be larger like his sons were in the show. So he made sure that he ate a lot. So he was a larger size. That is interesting. But I have heard of actors doing that, gaining weight for a part, just like sometimes they lose weight for a part. And that's what he said. He lost weight for Ballastar Galactica. Yes. Yeah, so he, he was willing to, to go through the, these transformations to play these parts. He was a dedicated actor. You're not kidding. He said that as a kid, he would read Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, but he read very little contemporary science fiction. But when he got signed up for Battlestar Galactica, he went to a science fiction bookstore in Los Angeles, and he said, outside of Isaac Asimov, because I'm familiar with him, who are your 10 best authors? And he ended up devouring about 30 books just to get up to speed on what was going on currently in the world of science fiction. Wow, so physically and mentally, he prepared himself for this incredible role. And not all actors do that. That was interesting to see that he did that. So he, he was dedicated. He wanted to to be able to, to play this part and really get into it and see like, more like what drives science fiction. I mean, if you, and if you know like what drives the, these fans, you can give them more of what they want and he probably like reading the books you can get more into the head of like like say the the leaders like the part he played mm-hmm. and uh, learn more about about what they're thinking and and how they what what drives them to do that to make the command decisions that they make yes he made a point because he was looking at connections between the books that he was reading and he said that every dramatic vehicle had its own life force its own spirit and Galactica is no exception. We're real human beings who are living in outer space and looking for a home. He was really the heart of that show. I mean, he he was the one who made it in the sense that he was he was the one in charge and the one who was also the wise advisor. He was always a good commander. Yes, and he also looked at it as the show being a vehicle to tell human stories. He said we could pretty much do anything. For example, he would ask himself, like, how does it feel to be confined on a ship? What if someone was killed? What if there was a murder mystery? Maybe we can make this a detective show or even a trial situation. So that's the idea of not just making it a space show, but adapting it to the human element of people that are on the ship. And so during this time period, he was also a concerned environmentalist. He talked to the Galactica writers and producers because they welcomed suggestions and ideas that he had about environmentalism. Now, we have to remember that th- these are people who are being pulled on a ship together, and they have, to, they have to live together. They have to grow their own food. Everything now has to, has to be self-sustaining. Exactly. So he had part in this, which, which I think says a lot about Glenn Larson. Because previously it was revealed that Glenn Larson would talk to Gil Gerard about his role in Buck Rogers. And now Glenn Larson's talking to Lauren Green about his role in Ballastar Galactica. It, it does sound like Glenn Larson cared enough about his shows to, to get the actors involved and see what they wanted to do. Lauren Green goes on to say, As was explained in the first episodes, there was a mother civilization. The mother planet died long ago. In the original script, the mother planet died because of its son had begun to burn out. And I read that and said, no, that's not enough. People can't relate to that. Give them something they can relate to. Producers asked me if I had any suggestions. And I said, let's say that they are very highly evolved technologically, much more evolved than we are. But they made one mistake. They developed their technology, but they didn't do their homework as far as their own atmosphere was concerned. It became polluted, and that's why the planet began to die. So that was his way of showing what was going on in modern-day planet Earth and how there would be a pattern that when we're watching a science fiction show, something would click in our minds. Well, because 
Yeah, like you already said, he he's an environmentalist. So it was an issue that, that was a concern of his time. And and to put it in a show to see, like, hey, this is something that, that could really happen to us later on. Yeah. And it goes to credit Lauren Green with that idea. Also, he goes on to say how impressed he is that Glenn Larson has an attention to detail. That he send the crew out to Egypt to get some scenes filmed near the pyramids. Yeah, that was cool, too. That's virtually unheard of for television productions. That's motion picture budget, not television budget. Also, he talks about how he worked well with the other actors on the set, especially Richard Hatch. He went up to Richard and said, Richard, since we're supposed to have a father and son relationship, do you mind that in certain scenes, if I touch you, will it bother you? Richard said, no, it won't bother me. And so it's just little things like that that he imparted onto his character to have that fatherly compassion. That was awesome, too. Because, because I mean, yeah, that's a great way to develop the characters. And they needed to have, um, they needed to have that, that chemistry on screen, which I think they did. It did come off well on screen. He goes on to say that he's frustrated with too many people are relying on electronics. He said, my daughter has a calculator, and I could see if she wants to double-check her work, but... I don't want her to just use calculators all the time because if you use calculators too much, your brain will go to atrophy. And that's what the Cylons are. Cylons are taking over mankind because we can't do anything. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so, I mean, this guy's putting a lot of thought into it. We know that Richard Hatch put a lot of thought into Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, he did. Um, he, he had a lot of his own ideas to go into it. Jerry Anderson's Space Report. Hi, I'm Anthony Rooney, but you can call me Roo. The first thing I thought of was the fans who'd written in with their questions for Jerry Anderson. I mean, back in 1979, they didn't know about the internet or podcasting, and I wondered what they'd make of the fact that in the far-flung future space year of 2021, an Englishman would be discussing what they'd written. It occurred to me that they might not enjoy hearing me read out their letters. If you've heard me on a previous episode of this podcast, then you know that I can't do an American accent. It either comes out sounding like something from a 1960s western series, or a trailer for a Batman movie. Yeah, not good, I know. However, as it turned out, one of the questions in this space report was about the voice used by a computer in Jerry Anderson's UFO series, and that got me to thinking. Here I am, in the 21st century, when AI voice generators are readily available. So what if I let the artificial intelligences do the talking? What follows is the result, and if you're one of these fans from back in the day, I really hope that you'll enjoy hearing your voice spoken by a computer. I know what I would have done. Take it away, robots! Jim Hepburn asks, In the Space 1999 episode, War Games, Moonbase Alpha was attacked by Mark 9 Hawks. If these Hawk warships were built on Earth, why were there none stationed on Alpha? Jim, you misunderstood the point of the story of War Games, and that may have been caused by poor editing on the part of the station in your area. In fact, a few other Starlog readers have asked how Dr. Bob Mathias was in the second season if he was pulled out into space when the medical center window shattered. Let me try to explain. The point of the story was that aliens in this show had the capability of translating the Alphans' fear into an apparent reality. As the rogue moon approached the alien planet, the Alphans saw fighter craft which they instantly recognized as Earth Hawks approaching the moon base. The Alphans retaliated, in self-defense of course, and it was not long before there was full-scale war, destruction and death. At the end of the episode they realized that the whole incident had taken place in their minds. It was a piece of Anderson philosophy that you missed. War was a concept long banished by the aliens. To prevent human beings from contaminating their world by landing, the aliens played out their warning in the Alphan mines using the only warships they could create images of. Earth's Mark 9 Hawks and the alien spacecraft encountered by the humans in the Alpha Child episode. Everything in war games was nothing more than a dream, or nightmare, if you wish. So Bob Mathias didn't die. Why weren't the Hawks stationed on Alpha? 
well, it was clearly stated in the dialogue that that they were old machines, no longer in use, and would have been phased out before September 13, 1999. Fred King wants to know. What are the stars of space 1999 doing nowadays? Well, Fred, most of the people who worked on space 1999 are working all over the world, but the last I've heard is that Martin Landau has just completed Meteor and The Number, both to be released this summer in the US. Barbara Bain is currently writing a novel. Barry Morse has just completed The Shape of Things to Come. Catherine Schell will be guest starring in ITC's new Return of the Saint series, and in the TV movie Look Back in Darkness. Nick Tate has finished License to Love and Kill. Xenia Merton will appear in Return of the Saint. Prentice Hancock also guests in Return of the Saint. Anton Phillips plays a doctor in Return of the Saint. Brian Johnson has moved on from Alien to The Empire Strikes Back, the Star Wars sequel. Nick Alder has filled in for Brian on Alien. Clifton Jones will appear in the miniseries Ike. Joe Dearborn writes. I'd like to ask you two questions about your UFO series. First, who recorded the voice of Shadow's computer, Sid, the space intruder detector? Second, who designed and built those fantastic futuristic autos like Ed Straker's car, and what happened to them? The voice of Sid was Mel Oxley. Since the story of UFO suggested that Sid's voice was generated by a computer, we felt that the diction and voice quality should be perfect and we used Mel Oxley because he was, in fact, at that time a newscaster on the BBC. As to your question about the cars on UFO, I've asked Derek Meddings, who was supervising special effects director on UFO to explain. I designed the cars myself. These designs were then taken to Alan Mann, the racing driver. He built the three cars, which were originally designed for Jerry's film, Doppelganger, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, at a cost of around £10,000, which came to about £30,000 in 1969. Before they were actually built, a company in Germany who had some model makers for actual cars, came over to England and built the shape of each car in clay, like they do in a normal car factory. When the clay models were finished, I was asked to go and have a look at them and alter them or do whatever was necessary to bring them into proper design. Once this was done, Alan Mann built the cars out of sheet aluminium on top of a Ford Granada chassis. They were then upholstered and finished off like a real car. The gull-winged doors didn't work technically or hydraulically, somebody always stood off camera, holding the corner of the door. The only time you see the door open on its own is when it's propped up. There were also three Austin Minimokes, little jeeps which I redesigned by putting an extra set of wheels on the back so that they had six wheels altogether. Then a company called Space Models, who did a lot of fiberglassing, built the actual canopies and bodies for them which were built over an existing mini moke. What happened to them? Well, they were sold off at the end of the production with all the other props, and since then they have changed hands many times. Sadly, I don't know where they are today. Debbie Phillips, says. I've heard that there's an official fan club for Nick Tate, Space 1999's Alan Carter, in England. Could you please tell me the address? I'm sure many fans of Nick would be interested. The official fan club is the British Nick Tate Club. Nick keeps in constant touch to keep members up to date on his activities. Oh, I think the human would like to say a word. Thanks, computer. Actually, I just wanted to say a quick word about the Nick Tate Club. A lady called Carol Abbs started the club in 1977. Then Eileen Skidmore and Phyllis Proctor took over its running in 1978, and it lasted for decades, well beyond September 13th, 1999, right into the 21st century. I wasn't a member of the Nick Tate Club myself, but my wife was. Mrs. Rue met Nick Tate at a Star Trek convention back in the 1970s, when he was promoting the second season of Space 1999. Until then, my wife had never watched the series, but Nick made such a good impression that she started, and immediately became a fan. Well, I've been a Space 1999 fan since the beginning, so that was a nice thing we had in common when I met her in the late 1980s, also at a Star Trek convention. Plus, I got to read all the back issues of the newsletters that she'd collected. Full disclosure, I even contributed a couple of cartoons to the newsletter, featuring Crash Carter, a space pilot of Moonbase Alpha. Through my wife, I also became good friends with Eileen. She was a lovely lady, and I miss her very much. Sadly, she passed away in 2014. So if it's alright, 
I'd like to respectfully dedicate my little section of this podcast to the memory of Eileen and Phyllis. They created a nice, friendly and safe place in the world for fans of Nick Tate and Space 1999. Thank you, ladies. I hope you enjoyed my little experiment with the AIs, and I apologise if you've now got an overwhelming desire to go and watch an episode of Return of the Saint. I know the AIs weren't pitch perfect, but in all honesty, I think they sounded a lot better than me. And these things are improving every day. Very soon, I would imagine, AIs will be hosting most of your podcasts, so you might as well get used to it. Isn't that right, computer? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. All right, now the bulk of this issue of Starlog magazine is going to be the preview of science fiction films of 1979. And I can't imagine what it was like to live in 1979 to be a Starlog reader. I was too young, and I didn't know about Starlog until 1982. But... This gave a synopsis of what everyone could look forward to for the year, which looked exciting, but now we look back at it and say, was it really? First preview is James Bond Returns in Moonraker. Now we know the previous James Bond movie came out in 1977, same year as Star Wars, and I have to say that I really put some thought into it. Right now, a lot of modern movies, especially the Marvel movies, they have a post-credit scene, right? Yes. James Bond didn't have a post-credit scene, but they had a post-credit line. So if you watch all the way to the end of James Bond movies, the last sentence will be, James Bond will return in, and then it will release the next film in succession. So in 1977, The Spy Who Loved Me came out, and at the end of that movie it said james bond will return in for your eyes only but star wars was the big hit that year so what did united artists have to do instead of for your eyes only they made a james bond movie that had something to do with space so it was moonraker that's it and this article talks about that lots of pictures and this is the first time we're ever going to see james bond go into outer space in Moonraker, James Bond, the only superhero with a license to kill, seeks his prey in London, Capri, Venice, Rio, and outer space. And we just recently watched this movie. In the preview, it talks about how it would be truly a James Bond movie because he'd be going worldwide to exotic locales, but then the ultimate exotic locale, outer space. What'd you think about it? The movie was okay. The The thing is, it turned out that it didn't have that much about space. <laughs> it truly didn't. All the posters make you seem that. All the pictures in Starlog made it seem that. But it, it was still, it was okay for what it was. I do I do like um, the character Holly Goodhead. Oh, such a name. <laughs> <laughs> well, the story was written 25 years ago, predating Sputnik and the space race era by three years. you got to figure that. Ian Fleming was a true visionary to think ahead to this capacity. And I think it was a strike of genius for the producers to switch things around to make things uh, a movie that was very relevant, especially, and we've been talking about it in previous issues of Starlog magazine, that on the forefront of people's minds was the space shuttle program. And so this would talk about this new space shuttle called Moonraker and a multi-billionaire who wanted to go into space. And and it was a neat idea about um wanting to start a new race and with just taking the uh, the most perfect young humans from earth to start a new race of humans. Next preview. Veronica Cartwright's Alien Encounters. As a child actress, she starred in such harmless shows as Leave it to Beaver and Daniel Boone. Today, Veronica Cartwright is best known for her horrific roles in Body Snatchers and the upcoming production of Alien. Alright, so this preview talks about a new type of science fiction movie, and it alludes to the fact that it would have elements of horror in it. Well, horror is its own genre, and 
in, in this case, in her her movies, were it was, horror was also a bit of science fiction. Yeah, she was a child actor, and we just watched recently Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I didn't realize it was the same woman that was the lead in Body Snatchers that was the second woman in Alien next to Sigourney Weaver. That is interesting. She she likes to play these uh, these strong female roles, and and I've seen her on other things, L.A. Law, and she she was also in um, Witches of Eastwick. Oh, go figure! I didn't know she was in that. I mean, she wasn't one of the witches, but she was in it. Yes. Huh. She does say that since she's doing two science fiction movies back to back, that she doesn't want to be typecast, so she wants to branch out after this. But she does give a plot synopsis, saying that, and I'm surprised that this much was revealed. Because it talks about the alien bearing its way into John Hurt, the alien using Hurt as a human host to grow inside. I mean, she should have yelled out spoiler before she said that. Yeah, I guess it's it's funny. Alien, I would say, was probably my number one movie of 1979. A Brave New World When producer Jacqueline Babin decided... To bring Aldous Huxley's classic to TV, she threw conventional science fiction ideas out the window. This was a strange one. What did you think about A Brave New World? Um, yeah, I, I didn't get into it that much watching the movie. I mean, the book was good. This was a tough one to watch. <laughs> it's one of those ones that you keep seeing over and over again in these articles. Because of the success of Star Wars... A lot of science fiction was coming to the fore now. This is one where you just shake your head and say, the story is wonderful, but did they really need to be on such an extreme shoestring budget? Yeah, I can't say it was that entertaining. Now, now there have been other productions of Brave New World. I mean, like there was a, I think there have been at least two TV movies from it. And and yeah, I don't think any anybody has really made a really successful movie out of it. The basic plot of the show concerns the individualistic activities of outcast John Savage, a social freak actually born in a human womb during a time period of mass-produced test tube children some 600 years in the future. Aided in an off-the-wall way by Bernard Marx, a social misfit spawned by a chemical imbalance occurring during his assembly line birth process, Savage attempts to lead his own life during an era of mass conformity. This is the movie. I mean, this show has so much going for it, but the just production-wise, it's so, so low. It's just a struggle at times. But you like the book, and I never read the book. What did you think about the conversion from book to screen? I, I I think it was missing something. <laughs> I mean, the yeah, I think the book was more immersive. Get getting you to to understand their society i mean of course it was all a new you know new world building and you're you're supposed to look at it and and think oh that that's really different from us and you're supposed to be repulsed by it which i think that and that part did come off on the show but somehow it yeah just, there were some bizarreties on there yeah it, it just, the show the movie just didn't grab you though it, i'm glad i watched it but it was a struggle during parts Next preview. How does a young, talented filmmaker break into the field of sci-fi production? He works around the clock, buries his frustration, and never tries to take no for an answer. The Genesis of Vortex. I don't even think this movie came out. (laughs) This article goes on to say that it's from the same producer as Laser Blast, which was horrible. It's one of those movies you can't believe that became a movie. So I think in this preview issue, they were hoping it would come out, but nothing came to the fore. We've been watching a lot of these on Tubi, which is a fantastic free app that you can get on TV. So if you're into B science fiction movies of the 70s, that's something to sign up for. Yeah, if you're into that. (laughs) (laughs) If you listen to this podcast. Next preview, The Shape of Things to Come. It's 43 years later, and time for an update, or a sequel, as it is described, of H.G. Wells' 1936, Things to Come. I'm glad that this article gave a synopsis of the original Things to Come. Now, I 
This might be a movie that's on Tubi as well, Things to Come. Great movie from 1936, way ahead of its time. Thought-provoking ending. A lot of H.G. Wells movies or you know books that turn into movies are, are well done. This is no exception to it. But The Shape of Things to Come, it felt more like a sequel, kind of, sort of, to Space 1999. It had Barry Morse in it. Which was funny in itself. A movie that takes place on the moon with Barry Morse, as soon as you see it, you think Space 1999. That's very odd casting. Like it was intentional. (laughs) (laughs) And you could tell the Star Wars influence here is having these goofy robots. I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked aspects of it. This article pumps it up, though. It says, In some respects, the new shape will more closely remember Star Wars than Wells' original. Would Wells approve? That no one could say for sure. The three Wells-inspired films to be made during his lifetime, that is, Things to Come, The Island of Lost Souls, and The Invisible Man, were all literate adult fare, closer to the letter and the spirit of the original works. The Shape of Things to Come is a tale of war and survival, but whether it carries some of Wells' nobler sentiments to a new generation of science fiction fans can be decided by the viewer. Right, we're going to close out by... Reading one of the ads in Starlog Magazine, full-page article called Superman, the Merchandise. Choose now from the most spectacular and comprehensive movie package ever. Okay, so it's a series of books. One is called The Making of Superman. Another is called The Superman Quiz Book. Another is a 1979 calendar for four ninety-five. Did you like calendars during that time? Yeah. That I was did. a big deal. Having calendars of all kinds of movies and TV shows. Superman cutouts. Superman portfolio, which I would love to have because I loved 14 by 11 pictures. Superman blueprints. A set of 15 authentic blueprints of the movie's exotic sets and props. Fortress Solitude, Luthor's Lair, the Superman spaceship, and Jor-El's laboratory. Encased in a vinyl snap pouch for six ninety five. Also, a Superman telephone book. There's room to list 400 listings, including listings of the Daily Planet that have already been entered. Out of those, what would you want to order? The trivia book, I guess. <laughs> okay. Official quiz book is only $1.95, plus 50 cents postage and handling. Well, can you imagine? Everything was so cheap back then. <laughs> That's what we think. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.